welcome all of our YouTube people out there and <clears throat> nobody turning in today. Uh, <clears throat> now we're going to finish up Hebrews today <clears throat> and um, then the next time we get together we'll, we'll start on the book of Acts. And uh, it's easy to see now that how the book of Hebrews um, goes together. And I don't know, other than a few guys sprinkled out there who, who understand it, I, I don't know anybody today that has a, has a right understanding of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> I mean, everything you read on it, that people write books on it, just completely off the wall. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, I wanted you to have a good understanding of it and how it fits into uh, the overall New Testament. And if you notice that Hebrews comes after after the uh, the uh, pastoral epistles, and, and what you have here in your New Testament is is this, and this is how you want to look at the overview of your New Testament. I probably have given you this before. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John historically. Uh, cover all of the first coming of Christ and brings you up to um, the crucifixion and Israel's, you know, rejection of the Messiah. Then we have the book of Acts. The book of Acts now will transition you, and you already know this, from the uh, Jew to the Gentile. In Acts chapter 1 through 7, you see the Jews getting their final shot at it. And then everything changes. So the book of Acts is a key pivotal book that brings you from the Gospels and the first coming of Christ and fundamentally the Old Testament into the New Testament church. So this is why Acts is so crucial. Then you have, after the book of Acts, you have all of Paul's books. And all of Paul's books are all written to the church. So now we're clearly in the church age. Once we get to the end of Paul's books, which is Philemon, then we come to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews will be for us on this part of the Bible what Acts was us for in the beginning part. Because where Acts transitioned you into the church age, Hebrews now transitions you out of the church age. And this is why Hebrews is written where it is to who it is, because it begins... For us who are looking at the whole New Testament, it begins to transition out. So after Hebrews, then, of course, you have, you know, you have the book of James, which is totally to the Jew in the tribulation. First and second, Peter, which is, um, you know, he's the apostle to the Jews. Uh, First, second, and third, John, where he kind of closes it out for us. And then, of course, the end book, the book of Revelation. So fundamentally... I would say, if you want to get a handle on it, your New Testament operates like this. Matthew is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. So it defines him as the king of the Jews. Acts is the transition from that period into the church, and Hebrews is the transition uh, from the church into the tribulation and on into the second coming of Christ. So, you want to keep that in mind, and that's why these books are so vitally important, because if you don't see them in that context, then you make the mistake 
that they're like every other book in the Bible and they fit into what, uh, you know, New Testament Christianity is. And of course, that's not true. That's not how it works. So you'll want to remember that. And, and that's a basic, easy way of, of being able to keep it all in, in uh, perspective for you. So we now have come through 12 chapters and we've seen now that the theme of Hebrews is simply the word better. And what we have here now is him comparing the Old Testament and everything that Israel had to the New Testament. When I told you uh, when we started, the, the, book of, the, the, the book of Hebrews is probably the earliest book written in the Bible. There's no real proof for that, but it, it, it probably was Paul's first book that he wrote. And he may have written this while he was out there. You know, he spends at least 10 or 12 years, three years in Arabia on Mount Sinai. And that's where he gets everything that God gave him for the church age. So at some point, he, we know he writes the book of Hebrews. So at some point, and I'm guessing based on just what we do know, that it was early, at some point, probably while he's still out there in that uh, being taught and trained, he, he wrote the book of Hebrews to give the Jew an understanding of what was better in the New Testament than that they had in the Old Testament. If you miss that key word better and you miss the book of Hebrews being written to Hebrews, well, then as we've talked about many, many times, you're left with the, uh, you know, you're left with the issue of, of making them fit into the church age Hebrew Christians or some goofy stuff like that, which, and then you get into a real mess trying to make these verses fit into Christian life when they have nothing to do with it. Some of them, obviously the parallels come across the board. The majority of them, they do not. So like any book of the Bible, and you know, I can't say this enough, like any book of the Bible, you getting the context of it is is vital. It will, without that, you know, you're just going to be flapping in the wind out there someplace and probably get, get messed up. Now, <clears throat> people will argue <clears throat> that Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, but then he wrote chapter 13. There is no... Everything up to chapter 12 does not follow Paul's standard um, writings the way he writes to the churches. Now, the reason for that is, is he's not writing to the churches. So you would, you would, you would find a different format. Uh, and this is what he does. And I, I think probably without a doubt, this is why. Now, I know in your King James Bible and probably most Bibles, when you come to the book of Hebrews at the beginning, it, it tells you in the heading that it was by the Apostle Paul. And that is the standard, uh, you know, uh, thought all down through history. So somebody who knew more about it than we did knew that he had written that. The problem is that it doesn't line up with everything else that he writes when he writes to the churches. And the reason for that is, obviously, he's not writing to the churches. He's writing to the, the Jews, the Hebrews, who uh, he's trying to show them now that he has the information, he's trying to show them that 
what in the New Testament is better than what they had in the Old Testament. Remember, he's writing this after all, writing all of this after Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. So he's now seeing the perspective. And remember, Paul was an absolute expert in the Old Testament law. So now that he's got the revelation of the New Testament, man, he's got it. So it stands to reason that when he wrote the book of Hebrews, he probably wrote it early when he's still out there. uh, And that's why he gives it a completely different format, a completely different name. And he doesn't really associate himself with it until he gets to chapter 13. Now, here's the standard teaching. And you can buy this or not buy this, it really doesn't matter. This is not something that you want to split a church over, but promise me, people will split over it. Look here at chapter 13, uh, verse 22. And I tell you this because I want you to understand everything that is out there about the books of the Bible, even though it may or may not be true. Now, in this case, this is probably the case here, and this is why guys say what they say. And it's probably true. But, there's, other than what you have here, uh, you know, you don't have any definitive bang. This is what is going on, but it probably is based on the verse. Look what he says. This is, like I said, and there's no question Paul's writing chapter 13. There is absolutely. He follows his pattern of every other book that he writes when he gets to chapter 13. And he says in verse 22, I beseech you, brethren, that's typically Paul, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. That's Paul. uh, For I have written a letter unto you in few words. Well, now, he can't be talking about the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews has 6,913 words in it. It's not a small book. So this is what is commonly taught, and, and I say probably true, even though you can't, absolutely prove it, but it's, it probably is, is the fact that Paul wrote the first 12 chapters early on, and then it's about 37 AD someplace in there, and then later on, after he starts his ministry, and you don't know where this is at, then he writes chapter 13 and adds it to them. That would be the reason why he says that uh, written them a letter of few words. We were talking about the last chapter. And there's no other explanation for that verse other than this. And yet, I would not be dogmatic about it, yet I emphatically believe that that's what you have. But, uh, you know, if a guy doesn't accept that, then he's got a tough time explaining that verse. But it looks like that's what happened. And that would make perfect sense uh, with the overall total complexity of the book that he writes the first 12 chapters to Israel early on, but he also knows that this is getting circulated to the churches. So not only did he write it to the Jews to show them what is better, the Gentiles got it after the church got started. It was put into their books so they would know what he said to the Jews and how God viewed the Jews so they could better deal with the Jews. Because remember, they're, they're, try, they're winning Jews all the way up. And I can't think of a better book if you're going to win a Jew to Christ than the book of Hebrews. First of all, it's written to them. 
Second of all, it covers all of the Old Testament things that they adhered to. And thirdly, it shows you that there's something better now. So, I mean, if I was going to deal with an Orthodox Jew, that's exactly where I would go. I'd go to the book of Hebrews. And uh, so this is probably what you have. And uh, you just want to put those notes in your Bible and, uh, and keep that in the back of your mind when you come to chapter 13. Like I said, there'll be guys out there that, that don't accept that, and, and that's fine. Uh, but it's a thing where that's probably what you have. And so when we get to chapter 13 is where we're at today. What we have here is a chapter that he deals with the encouragement to the faithful. Now, obviously, when Paul writes this last chapter, the church age is fully in bloom now. So when he's writing this to Christians, New Testament Christians who are not Jews, but are reading it as it's written to the nation of Israel, showing them, and they're using it to deal with Jews, he's also giving in this last chapter uh, things of encouragement for us to be faithful in. And, you know, this, in this chapter, it's built around or wrapped around four what I call great principles that, uh, that, are, there, that should be an encouragement to us. So it's a thing where, you know, this chapter in itself, even though Paul is closing it out, and very honestly, in most of the books that he writes, when he closes the last chapter out, it's basically a bunch of goodbyes, see you later, and, and hope everything is going well. Uh, there's not a lot of real meat in some of those, even though there's some good verses in them. But that's not true here. Uh, every chapter through the book of Hebrews or sections of chapters have been had a theme with them. And we have seen that as we've come through. Now we finish the last chapter and he deals with encouragement to the faithful. That faithful will be the Jews who have gotten saved and it also will be to the Gentile church who is carrying on, who he is ministering to, but he has written this book so they can better understand how to deal with God's people, the nation of Israel. So with that in mind, uh, let's, uh, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's carry through this thing. And I'll, I'll spend time on the four uh, good principles. There's a lot of good stuff in here, but there's four major encouragement that I want you to see today. And you need to mark them in your Bible as we come through him. He says, let brotherly love continue. Uh, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now that's, always a, that's obviously a reference first and foremost to Abraham. And that goes back to Genesis chapter uh, 19 there, where uh, the, the Lord and two angels come to him, uh, 17, 18, and 19, the whole story unfolds itself. And uh, he entertains them. Entertaining means he invites them into the home. And, uh, you know, it's a great story there and a great conversation that he has with them, with the Lord, anyhow. And uh, it's a thing where uh, that is the, a place where you, he didn't necessarily know what was going on, maybe at the beginning when he saw him coming. He obviously did once they got there. And it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to us to, 
I've always thought I'm not, <laughs> and I'm careful saying this, I don't, we know that in the church age, we don't have angels that, um, that appear to us to, um, to have conversations with or, with or whatever. At the same time I say that, I'm not going to rule out that, uh, that, uh, that there are times when God sends somebody uh, in the form of an angel to uh, be there in a time when we need that. I've had too many stories over the years of of, of old uh, guys that were. Uh, one I remember in particular is the fact that this guy was preaching, and I forget where he was preaching, but he turned the place upside down, and everybody wanted him dead. And the guys came up and were going to take him out into the alley, and uh, and and obviously do him some bodily harm, if not kill him. So he's on an upper platform here where he's doing his stuff in a room, and there's a stairway that goes down the stairs and then out to the main entrance, but there's an exit there that went into the alley. And so these guys, and this is a true story, man, these guys grab him and are manhandling him and throwing him and pushing him down these stairs, going to take him out the alley exit and whatever they were going to do to him. And he told the, I heard him tell the story. And he says, as they, as, they, as they were pushing me down those steps to get me out in the alley, I looked up and there was a man standing in front of that exit with his arms across his chest and he blocked the exit and the guys couldn't get out and they just rolled me past him and I went down to the main entrance and everybody else was there and the crowd kind of broke up and he says, I got away. He says, I never, ever, ever had seen that guy in the meeting that I was having or speaking to them. He says, I've never recognized the guy. I had no idea who he was. He wasn't part of the crowd that was trying to hurt me because if he was part of that, he'd have had the door open. But he blocked that door that they could not get me out and went on down into the lobby, so to speak, and there was other people there where they couldn't, so the cow just kind of dispersed and broke up, and he got away. He claimed that that was his verse here. Now, I'm certainly not going to dispute that. Now, I know. I, I get it. I, 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 I understand. Charismatics will talk about the fact that, you know, that uh, I get it. And, but I'm just telling you, as a general rule, we know that God doesn't deal with us like he did with the nation of Israel who got the law, the Bible says in Acts chapter 7, by the disposition of angels. In other words, God used angels. But I am not going to sit here and tell you that in extreme circumstances, and I don't even know what extreme means, that God couldn't do that if he felt like that was what needed to be done. So, you know, take that for, for what it's worth or don't take it. I don't really care. Um, but the verse simply says that uh, be not forgetful. Now, when he says be not forgetful, that means that we don't want to forget that God did do that. Now, I know that's not the standard operational procedure of the day, but, um, you know, God can do whatever he wants to do, and, uh, and, and he does. So he says there, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember them that are in bonds, as in bond with them, 
which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Now, when he says also in the body, he's not talking about being saved in the body of Christ, obviously in the context, but I've heard guys try to do that. Uh, he's talking about the context of verse 3, uh, putting yourself in the other person's place to feel and understand what they're going through. If there's anything that is lacking in Christianity today, it's compassion. And it's lacking in the world. And the reason for that is, is we live in a world that is so, on every turn, we, we get so accustomed to violence, to terrible things, that we get desensitized to it. We, we get hardened to it. And, uh, you know, we get to the point where we, we see so many on the news, how many murders we see on television. You watch the shows, and I like them too, where, every, you know, and when in two hours' time, 198 people got killed. And, uh, you know, I enjoy that, and you do too. Nothing better than a horror movie. I love seeing teenagers get cut up with a chainsaw. That's really a good thing. But at the same time, all of that brings you to the point where you, you get hardened to the real issues of life. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing where you know, God's people lose their sensitivity to what other people are going through. And um, I, I think a, a real mark of, of, a, of a good Christian is the ability to feel what others are going through and, and, and be there for them. Romans 14.1, you that are strong out to bear the infirmities of the weak. And I know we use that verse a lot of times that if somebody is immature and doing something stupid, uh, that we, we just help them through that. And that is true. But it's also about somebody going through something, you know, that, we, that they're having a tough time with. And, uh, you know, hey, there's times when there's nothing you can really do but just be there for them, put your arm around them. But it's a thing where, you know, compassion is the thing that's missing today uh, with God's people. And uh, he says here, remember them that are in bonds. Well, in the day that he's talking about, obviously that's a reference to being put in prison. But being in bonds today means much more than that. It's something that's a stronghold in somebody's life that, you know, it really has them. Uh, and, and, and he says, you want to understand where they're coming from and realize that, uh, you know, that their adversity should be our adversity. So, you know, that is a good verse. Now, I haven't got to the four yet. I'm just walking through this chapter. And then he says in verse four, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, the bed undefiled there is a reference back to the Old Testament law where there are some things that the bed was defiled with. And you find that in one great chapter in Leviticus chapter uh, 15. And it's the, it's the chapter on clean and unclean with men and women. So, you know, so what he's saying here, basically, that in the New Testament, uh, the things of the law, no matter what it may be, uh, are no longer, uh, are no longer uh, in, in play. Everything now has changed. And, uh, you know, and this is another, to me, this is another key thing that Paul is writing this uh, later on because he has just dealt with the Old Testament through here. And now he's making a final pitch, so to speak, that nobody's under the law anymore, that it's all changed. So, you know, that 
that is a that is a key there that I would look at to think that that's exactly what he's doing. And then verse five, and verse five will be our will be our first um, will be our first one here. Uh, and it says, "Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, uh, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee." Now, there's three things in this that are they're really good, and this again is an encouragement to the faithful. And the first thing he says is, "Let your conversation." Now, we don't use the word conversation in its purest form today. As the English language has degenerated and you know and 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 lost a lot of its significance, uh, the meaning of the words change from where they were intended to be used, and as you find them in the Bible, and this becomes a source for a lot of people that you so I can't understand the Bible, and of course, back in the day, uh, the word conversation was the equivalent of somebody's lifestyle, and that's based on the biblical principles that you find in the Bible that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, see? And so this principle is lost today because we don't see conversation as lifestyle. In other words, whatever comes out of your mouth is where your life is at, is what he's saying. And, uh, you know, and that's a great, you know, that's a great principle. So he says, let your conversation be without covetousness. And what he's saying here is that in your life, by what you do and what you say, don't envy the things that other people have that you don't have. And this becomes, this becomes, a, this becomes a problem in, in the world, really, but forget the world, in Christianity. People wanting to outdo the other person. You know, somebody has a big wedding, and, uh, you know, and it's a beautiful wedding, and so you want to have a big wedding. Uh, you know, you, somebody buys a, a nice house, and so then you want to buy a nice house. Somebody buys a new car, so you want to buy a new car. <clears throat> and, you know, you see so much of that, <clears throat> and there's certainly nothing wrong with having a big wedding if that's what you want to do, <clears throat> or, or buying a new house or getting a new car. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's the motive behind why you do, and, of course, the word here is covetousness, wanting things that other people have or maybe even like other people have. There's only one thing that I can think of the word covetousness or covet that would fit into our Christian life as, as, uh, as a good, good way to use it. And that is we all ought to be covetous of somebody who really knows the Bible that we want to know it like they do. Uh, that's really the only place that you could really use that word. And, uh, you know, the word lust in the Bible is, 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 is always used in a bad connotation. Uh, but it's not always a bad connotation in life because you, everybody here, ought to lust after the things of the Lord. You, wanna, you ought to want those things so desperately that it becomes a passion for you. And when one is an immoral passion that's wrong, the other one is a moral passion for right. And, uh, you know, so when you, when you see the word here, covetousness, you know, and he's talking about, you know, you don't, you don't be, you let your conversation be without covenant. That is your lifestyle, the things you say. Um, you know, it's, there are things in the Christian life that we should covet. And we should covet the things of God. 
and uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a thing that every child of God ought to want um, what um, all you can have from the Word of God, and uh, there's nothing wrong with you know seeing somebody out there that really has a handle on the Bible and really knows the Bible, and you wanting that and as much or more. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where when I was growing up, I would see guys who could preach and guys that could really lay out the Bible. And, boy, it was my, it was my lifelong obsession to someday to be able to do that. Not necessarily to, to one-up them, but just because I envied what they had with God and I wanted that. And there's okay, it's all right to do that. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, as long as your motive is to serve God with it in, in, in a pure heart. So... No, he says, let your conversation be without covetousness. And then a great verse here, and be content with such things as you have. Now, this will be 1 Timothy 6, 6, and, uh, where he says that uh, uh, contentment with godliness is great gain, or godliness with contentment is great gain, one way or the other. And it basically is we need to be content with what we have. We we talk about that the first sin in the Bible was the sin of pride, and there's no question about that. But I will tell you, before pride entered into it, covetousness did. The devil wanted what God had, and he didn't want what God had so he could be like God. He wanted what God had so he could overthrow God. And, uh, you know, so covetousness, in a lot of ways, is where sin starts. And uh, it starts in our hearts with us not being satisfied with what God gives us. If there's one thing that God's people have a struggle with today, anyhow, it's this one thing right here. We defeat ourselves because continually every day of our life, we focus on the things we don't have instead of being thankful for the things that we do have. And that is a struggle for God's people. We just are always looking down the road someplace of something else that we want when we just take for granted the things that we already have. And that will, that will lead to a covetous spirit faster than anything that I know. <clears throat> Simply, you know, not focusing on the things that you don't have. Because we all could make lists of things that we don't have that we probably would like to have. But the key is, you may get those in time or you may not get those in time. But here's the key. If you're not content with what you have, then you probably will get those things, but it won't be because God gave them to you. It's because you found a way to manipulate to get them yourself, and then you give God the glory for it. And that won't work either. So it's a great principle. And it has to deal with the fact that we are content with where we're at, with what we have, in the sense of physical things. Now, you should never, you want to explain these verses. You may have to be content with where you live and what you have financially, but you should never be content with where you're at spiritually. You know, there is the difference between the word lust, how it's used, and the word covetous is used. You should never be content with where you're at spiritually. You always want to keep going. I, I say it all the time, you know, and again, we live in a world where everybody is an expert on something. And, uh, you know, we look at guys that are with the, with the 
computer world, like Bill Gates and those guys, and we look at them as experts. When you go to trial and you're in a trial, they'll bring in a doctor or somebody out here and you say he's an expert witness, and he, that's supposed to mean something, you see. And, uh, when, and so we find all of that weaving its way into Christianity, and we actually think that, that there are experts when it comes to the Bible. And we know them as Bible scholars. They're lifted up as, you know, men of great learning. It's, it's almost like the, you know, the, the Gnostics, uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the Gnostics back in the early church, you know. But today we have that where, uh, and as I've said many, time, many, many times, in Catholic church, they spend all their time worshiping dead saints. In Bible Christianity, you spend all your time worshiping live saints, Guys that are out there that uh, you know that you think are um, are the experts in the Bible, and we know that when it comes to the Word of God, there are never will be any experts. And the way you got to look at that is the fact that there we're all students of the Word of God, but we're students on different levels. But you will never arrive with the Bible where you are an expert. And if you will never rise in a Bible where you're a biblical scholar. And, of course, uh, that is, a, that is a, a, a catchword that is thrown out there to elevate somebody above you common people. And, of course, it's just simply not true. But Christianity falls for it. I mean, they fall for it flat over their face, man. I mean, they flat fall for it. And that they believe that there's men out there uh, who actually you know, are, are experts when it comes to God. You'll find it sometimes in segments of Christianity. You'll find guys who are experts in soul winning, see? So if you want to win people to Christ, bring this guy into your church and he'll give you the keys of soul winning. You'll find guys who are, who are experts in prayer. We've had several of those in our, in our church over the years, um, you know, and... Uh, it's a thing where all of these guys are so far outside the Bible that it's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, they'll come in and they'll, they'll talk about, well, you know, uh, your church doesn't pray right and you don't do the right things. Uh, I'll show you how real prayer is and, uh, you know, and all those things. And, and, and all the time, you know, I had a guy one time was in there and he was criticizing everything we do. And when his marriage blew up, found out that, you know, he was the porn king of, of, of the porn channels, you know, yet he's going to teach us about prayer. You know, and I, and I, you know, and I told him, I said, you know what, if I want a porn site, I will call you. But if I want to learn about prayer, I won't bother calling you. And it's a thing where, because it becomes flesh, see, you, we want an expert. We want to elevate ourselves. It, it's a thing where everybody wants the recognition. I shouldn't say everybody. Um, there's many people out there that want the recognition of being recognized for something. You know, and it's a thing where every one of them will be shallow in their spiritual relationship with God because you can't focus on one thing to be an expert on. And when it comes to the Bible, we're all students. We may be on different levels, but we're all students. And uh, it's a thing where you'll never get to the point where you're an expert with the Word of God. So therefore, you know, this, the verse is very clear uh, that, uh, you know, we're content with the things that we have. But I'm never content with where I'm at with the Word of God. But I also know I'll never get to the place where 
you know, it's that I have it all down. And it's just, it just isn't that, it isn't the way that it is. And, uh, you know, it, it, but guys will try to do that. They're, they they have, they're not complete in who they are with Christ. They really don't have a very good handle on the Bible. They would never spend the time to get into the Bible. Most of them are really not part of any New Testament local church. So they don't want to do the investment of learning the whole Bible and becoming good with it. So they pick one little segment and they make themselves an expert. And we're supposed to believe that, you see. And... Um, you know, it's a thing that it, it just, it's just not true. And um, so you, you find it all the time. So he says, let your conversation be without covetousness. We got that covered. And be content with the things as you have. We got that covered. And then a great verse. And this is a verse that, that uh, goes right across the board. For he, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, that is a great verse for all of us. And that is the reason for everything else in verse 5. It's the reason that our conversation, our lifestyle, should be without being covetous. It's why we should be content with the things that we have because we have an eternal promise from God that he's going to be there for us through everything uh, that we go through. That is one of the greatest verses in the Bible for all of us, but at the same time, it's the one that many of God's people come up short with. We like the verse and we believe the verse when everything is going fine. But when things go south, when everything falls apart, when your Christian world goes upside down or the world goes upside down, suddenly that verse gets lost in the shuffle someplace along the line. And uh, it's a thing where God said he'd never leave thee nor forsake thee. And I'm glad he put not only leave, but he also said forsake. And, uh, you know, that's a tough verse for a guy that can, believes he can lose his salvation. And uh, it's a thing where uh, that is one of the greatest simple promises anywhere in the Bible that he's going to be there for us no matter what we go through. And then he says, verse 6, so that, based on what he just said in verse 5, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Now, that's another good word that is missing today in Christianity is the word boldly. There are no bold Christians today, very few anyhow. You know, most of them are weak. Most of them are effeminate. Most of them are are wishy-washy. Most of them can't stand for anything uh, of any value. And uh, most of them honestly cannot say, let alone boldly. They can't even say it weakly. And I don't mean Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I mean, you know, in a strong sense, the Lord is my helper. Because for the Lord to be your helper, there has to be some ingredients in our lives that ensure that we aren't helping ourselves. And uh, we all have a tendency to do that. And, you know, I love, I, I love being put in positions in my life where when God does something, there's absolutely no way in this world that I could have done it. There's very few times in our lives 
And, and I know there are, there, are, there are things that you can do to ensure that it's not you, that it's him. But even having that said, there are very few times when things happen in our lives that we can actually say that we could have manipulated it, even though we probably didn't. But you're going to covet the times and you want to mark them down of the times that God comes through for you when you had absolutely nothing to do about it and you could do nothing to make it happen. Those are the things that you can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Because other than that, in most cases, we just help ourselves and then tell God, thank you, and God had nothing to do with it. And we're famous for that, especially in the Laodicean church period. When he says over in Revelation that the church of Laodicea goes through all those things and then he simply says, has, has need of nothing, that's an understatement. Because they don't need God, because they got it all themselves. They got the Bible experts, they got, the, they got everything they got going for them. They got the big buildings, they got this, they got that, they got the big offerings. They got, there's no need to trust God for anything. I used to laugh when Bob Jones University used to put out a magazine, maybe they still do, I don't know. They used to put out a magazine called Faith Magazine, and they would send it to preachers and everybody that was alumni and everybody that, anybody that wanted it could have it. And there was their publication on a monthly deal called Faith Magazine. And I used to laugh at it because the guys that were putting that out were at Bob Jones University where they lived on tax-free property. Uh, if their toilet busted, there was a maintenance guy to fix it. They all had humongous salaries. They, uh, they, wasn't, they didn't have to cut the grass. They didn't have to do anything. Everything was done for them. They didn't even have to cook their food. They didn't have to buy their food. It was all there. Everything was done. All they did was live in a bubble someplace and then going to write a magazine to people that are struggling about faith. And yet I say that, yet God's people just gobbled and gooped up that magazine. They actually took it like they were going to teach them something about faith. And uh, you know how you learn about faith going through things and you can't get out of it any way, shape, or form, but then God comes through for you. That's faith. And anything other than that, <laughs> you better, better watch it very carefully. So he says, so that we may say, boldly say, uh, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now that's a great verse because Everybody here is afraid, not here, I'm saying in Christianity, everybody in Christianity is scared of what somebody's going to do to them. And uh, we fear man more than we fear God. This is why pastors don't preach the Word of God the way they should, other than the fact that they're not very good preachers, and other than the fact that they don't know squat about the Bible. But even if they did, they take the low road simply because they don't want to make anybody mad. Because they got to have people come to church and they got to have people uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the, the fill the thing because they got, man, they got a, you know, they, they got gigantic bills they got to pay every month. And, uh, you know, they got to have no bucks, no Buck Rogers, man. I mean, you got to have everything that's going on there and everybody. So you're not going to make anybody mad. So you're going to fear, man. I've seen preachers that were feared the deacons that the deacons had complete control of the church and the pastor just put in the corner with his tail between his legs and whatever they said. And he wasn't going to because they had the power to fire him. A deacon shouldn't have the power to fire a pastor, but the pastor should have the power to fire a deacon. But that's, you see, it's all backwards today. And it's a thing where, you know, <clears throat> we're, we're afraid of everything about what we ought to be. 
And this is why, you know, and I, you know, this is why when you see in churches that you'll get somebody over here that'll cause a problem and, you know, in a major issue, and everybody knows they're wrong. Uh, and the pastor has to deal with it by himself, and everybody else in a church wants to stay buddy-buddy and be friends with them and all this stuff and pretend like nothing's really happening. But why? Because you're afraid of them. You know, you're afraid of man more than you are afraid of the Lord. Now, I'm no hero in any sense of courage by any stretch of the imagination, nor do I want to portray myself one. But I am telling you right now, I will never fear man over fear in the Lord. And if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And if somebody doesn't like it, I don't know what to tell you. If it's right and it's biblical and it's true, that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I, in softball, I was a really good pitcher. I didn't, I'm retired now, you know, but I was a really good pitcher. And in pitching, uh, it was a lot like my preaching. I put it right down the plate, waist high, man, where you could take a swing at it. And that's the way preaching ought to be. You know, you don't throw balls. You don't throw, you know, air balls. You put it right across the plate where they got to take a swing at it. And that's the way you preach. And it doesn't matter whether they hit the ball or they don't hit the ball. All that matters is that you put it straight across the plate. That's all that matters. And, uh, and the reason why pastors don't do that is because they're afraid of people. And I'm much more afraid of the Lord than I am any man on this earth, believe me. And uh, it's a thing where it's, you know, it's just, it's just the way it's got to be. And so, um, you know, that we may boldly say, boldly, um, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And I want to tell you right now, you might as well get this straight. You get into ministry, and brother, they're going to try to hurt you. They're going to come after you. The devil is not going to miss this one. And this is why, you know, I build you the way I build you. Uh, this is why, you know, and I know some, most of the cases it's true, but a lot of cases it's not. It's just catching talking points. This is why we have to have each other's back. Because uh, when you get into the ministry and you start shaking the things up for the Lord, they're going to come after you. Uh, they're going to cause you problems. And, uh, you know, you can't sidestep it. Uh, you've got to man up and you've got to take it and you've got to deal with it because you don't want to fear man more than you do the Lord. If it's right, it's right. And if somebody doesn't like it, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I'd much rather stand at the judgment seat of Christ with my head up and my shoulders back because I did the right thing than kowtow to you and not do the right thing and have to pay the price over there. And so it's boldly, boldly, because there's going to be people that come after you when you decide you're going to do what's right. And, uh, you know, I try to prepare you for it, and you see it, if you've been in the ministry here any length of time, you've all been exposed to it, you've all seen it, you've always had it happen to you. It's just the way life is. You've got to care more about the things of God than you care what people think about you. And that's hard today. That's hard today. Because uh, there's a certain moral toughness that's missing in God's people today. And, uh, you know, just the way it is. And so he says, Remember them which have the rule over you to have spoken unto you the word of God, those uh, whose faith follow considering 
uh, the end uh, of their conversation. And of course, this is a reference to the New Testament local church and the structure that God has put in our lives. And uh, hey, I, I am the first one to tell you is that there are bad churches out there that do terrible things to people and don't give them what they need. We all know that. I, 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 can't, I can't tell. read this verse about submitting yourself to whoever rule over you without saying there's some people out there in churches, pastors, that are absolutely worthless. But at the same time, when you find one that's a Bible-believing church that you trust and you believe in, you need to realize and understand that that's God's structure for the New Testament Christian. Now, there may be a lot of bad churches out there, but you've got to find a good one. And, uh, you know, I had a guy tell me one time, he said, well, I don't go to church anymore. He says, because, uh, you know, I've had too many bad experiences with churches, four or five now, and so I just don't go to church anywhere. And my answer was to him, well, do you ever, do you ever go to a restaurant that you got bad food or bad service? And he says, well, yeah. I said, so you don't eat out anymore. You know, you see the stupidity of some things done. say, but you got to remember, underneath all of that, all that verbiage, all that garbage, all that big line of this is probably a guy who really doesn't want to go to church anyhow. So you, you got to read between the lines, so to speak, and, uh, and see when a guy says something like that, probably an underlying reason, uh, even though I get it. There's a lot of goofy churches out there. But when you find one, and, uh, and, and I told him, I said, just because you've had five bad ones, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. But it's a thing where, you know, there are, when you find a good one, and there's some out there, then you realize that that is God's structure. God's structure for the New Testament Christian is a New Testament local church. And that's the way it is. That structure is laid out with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That structure is laid out in almost every book that Paul writes. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, almost chapter by chapter. And of course, it's a thing where we have to, you know, we have to follow what he's saying here. I've known guys that were... <clears throat> I've seen guys in my time, and, and many of them were out of my own ministry over the years. <clears throat> they really know the Bible well. And they could probably go on par with just anybody toe-to-toe on the Bible. They really know their Bible well. But they always get screwed up in some goofy hobby horse doctrine that is just off the wall completely. And I've seen this a number of times over the years. And, you know, I've looked at it and I've watched it, and I, I've come to the conclusion that it becomes very obvious in every case what the problem is. And the problem is that they learned the Bible, but the prob- that was not the problem. They learned the Bible, but the problem was they never were part of a New Testament local church that they made themselves accountable to somebody that they didn't get out of step, out of line with the Bible. The church does one thing for you if it's a really good church. It keeps you between the white line biblically and historically. And if a church doesn't do that, then they're missing the boat someplace. Because you cannot separate the Bible from its biblical principles, from its historical accuracy of what they believe and what they taught. And when a guy can learn all the Bible, 
because he's not part of the structure, or her for that matter, but it's mostly guys, because they're not part of that structure, then they don't have the accountability that keeps them historically in line. And so it produces some of the most arrogant people on the planet who believe some of the goofiest stuff you have ever heard in your life. And I've had every one of them almost say the exact same thing. God showed me this, but he never showed anybody else down through the history of the church. But he showed me that. Who do you think you are? The Apostle Paul on Mount Sinai? I mean, that's just not the way it works. But by that point, they're so far shot and they're so far into themselves because with much knowledge comes much pride. You see, that's another thing the church, church does for you. You get a lot of knowledge here, but every Sunday morning I kick the fire out of you to keep you from being proud about it. So there's a balance in the thing, see? But when you don't have that balance and you're left to yourself, you know, then you become exactly what these guys become. And I see them, I've seen them all through my ministry. And it's a thing where they, they want the Bible and I'll give it to them. They really know the Bible very well. But it's a thing where because of the fact that there's no structure in their life, they get out there on some wild hobby horse someplace running off to the sunset and uh, because they have nobody holding them accountable, no historical accuracy, they're left to themselves, shoot, they can come up with whatever they want to come up with, and that's what they usually do. That's why we got guys out there that teach that, uh, that, there's no, that the rapture of the church is no longer valid, you know. Well, now, where did you get that? I mean, uh, it's a thing where it's just crazy stuff, but that's what happens. And those guys get out on a tangent like that, and uh, they're just an absolute disaster. A lot of times it'll be in, in a sense of, of a complete um, understanding and idea of legalism, you know, that they lift out everything out of grace and, and uh, you know, in your liberty and, and throw it away and put you under a, a, a canopy of laws. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where they, 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 they have no... There's a guy up here north, uh, up here... Sugar Creek or someplace. I knew this kid way back in the day. Uh, I don't even think he's saved. He probably isn't. But it's a thing where, you know, I've watched him, I watched him, I watched him reject every authority of every New Testament church all of his young life. He never submitted himself to anybody's authority, but he claims the Bible terrible teacher of the Bible, knows nothing about the Bible, but now here's what he did. He started a church because he couldn't submit himself to any church authority. He starts his own church and then sets himself up as authority. And you see him do that. So he's got this, I've talked to people that went to his church, especially a lot of the husband and wives. His teaching is that a wife has to, she's a subservient to the husband. She has no say in anything. And whatever the husband says, that's what she does. She has no say in the family. She has no say in anything. And she has to be a doormat. And that's what they teach. And the women all wear dresses down to their ankles and long hair down to their rear end. And, uh, you know, uh, and it's a thing where that's, that's how they live their lives. And the guys are so legalistic, you know, they're just, everybody's there. And they, they just, but there is absolutely absolutely no grace in anything that they do. Why? Because 
They have set themselves up as their own authority. They say they believe the Bible, but the Bible is the farthest thing that they follow. Because in time, I'm just going to tell you, in time, in time in each of our lives, whatever is lacking in our lives in 10, 15, 20 years will show up. And you know what it is in these guys' cases? Authority. And it always pops. It always happens. And I've seen it all my life. I've been, I've been there, man. I'll tell you what. I, I've talked with these guys, dealt with these guys. I've watched them. And I've come to the conclusion, you can't really judge a guy or a gal. You can't really judge them completely of what they're going to do. And I say judge them, I mean how they're going to operate. You can teach them, you can train them, you can give them everything that you have in your soul that you've learned. But the guy will never show you what he really is or the gal till they're out on their own. They'll either follow the pattern that you established or they won't. And uh, I've seen it happen. I knew a guy one time that, you know, went out to start his own church and he was so off the wall that it was unbelievable. And so he would hire for his music program, he would hire unsafe people to come in and do the music program in his church. And, uh, you know, it was a thing where it was a disaster. Lost his church, lost everything. But it's, it, it all comes down to when a guy gets outside the structure of the church. Now listen to me. When a guy gets outside the structure of a New Testament church, I don't care what he knows about the Bible. You can't have one without the other. When he forsakes the structure of the New Testament church and he's out there on his own, you know what he does? They all do it. They forsake the tried, tested way of building a church. And because of their pride, because of their egos, everybody out there thinks they're going to reinvent the wheel. When it comes to building a church, the die's already been cast, pal. There ain't no new wheel to be invented. There's a tried, true way to build a New Testament church that's laid out in the Bible. And when you forsake that and you get out of the structure that should teach you that, then you come up with all these goofy ideas. You come up with all these things like, well, I'll take Baptists off my name because that'll have more people come because that's what all the neo-evangelicals are doing. That's what you'll do. Well, we'll drop this. We won't teach that. We won't preach this because we want to reach people. You don't drop things out of the Bible so you reach people. You preach the truth of the Word of God and let hell or high water come and it either divides them in or divides them out. It's just that simple. But that's man manipulating it, see? I'd much rather get up there and preach the fire out of somebody on Sunday morning and let the results of the Holy Spirit of God tell me who stays and who leaves than me trying to pacify you to get on your good side to make you think I'm such a wonderful guy that you just want to be here because the sweet spirit of Jesus infuriates this place. I'm not worried about the sweet spirit of Jesus. I'm worried about the sweet spirit of truth. That's what you want. So anyway, remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. Now, that is the end of their lifestyle. Now, that is another great principle. I even hesitate to say it. Don't follow anybody who is the end of their life with their family, their kids, 
and everything that is going is a disaster. I've seen pastors in churches that the people think that they're the greatest in the world and teach the Bible and their own kid blew his brains out with a 38 caliber pistol. Is that what you're going to follow? I saw a thing the other day where they had this liberal guy who trying to de- defund the police out in Chicago. And while he's giving a fired up speech about hating the police and defunding them, three kids stole his car. You talk about the hand of God being in something. The kid that stole his car that was the gang leader was in the sixth grade. Sixth grade. Now let me show you how the world looks at it versus how I look at it. The world was on there. Every newscaster was talking about, you know, the, uh, the crime in America and how it's steeping down to kids in the sixth grade and going on and on and on and on and on and on and this and that and about not the fun and the police and put more police on in there. Not one of them asked the question, where was that kid's parents? See? See how the world looks at it and how the Bible looks at it. The world's nuts, man. Yeah, you got to look at somebody who's end. Now, we all going to have problems in life going through life, but you know where it really counts? How did you end up? You may be up and down, in and out, and struggling all your life, but the question is, where are you, where where does it where are you at at the end? Are you staying in the fight, or are you out? And of course, that's what he's saying. He's talking about talking about here somebody's conversation, their lifestyle. And he's saying, he's saying, you know, follow considering the end of their conversation. Consider if he's telling you all this stuff about the Bible, consider, is it working for him? Boy, that's a killer right there. And then my second great verse here, verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Boy, that's a great verse. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where um, that, is a, that is a great promise for every one of us. And, of course, uh, you know, that is a personal thing that he's going to be there for you because in a physical sense it wasn't true. He's not the same yesterday and today and forever because it was the time when he was born. There's a time when he was 12 years old. And there's a time when he's 33 years old. So he wasn't the same in a physical sense. So it's not talking about the physical Christ. It's talking about the promise to you and me as his children spiritually that in your life and my life, he is the one constant that never changes. Now, if there's any other reason for a man or a woman to get saved, that's it right there. Because everything in this world changes from hour to hour. And you get up and you watch the news at 6 o'clock in the morning and you watch it again at, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, just see how it's all changed. This world is on a whirlwind tour of itself. There's only one constant. Only one thing that you can bank on. Only one thing that you can hang on to that never changes that will always be the same, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet in Christianity today, we see that changing. In all the Baptist churches and all the evangelical churches, they, they just throw that verse away. They are changing Christ. They change His Word. They change His music. 
They change his, his preaching. And, uh, you know, but for you and for me, for Bible believers, that's one of the greatest single principles ever. And then he adds to that, if you do that in verse 8, look at verse 9. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Boy, there's where we're at today. I have never seen a time where there is so much goofy stuff being laid out about the Bible. It is absolutely, it's almost like when men don't know the Bible and don't understand the Bible, preachers, then they got to make up stuff about the Bible that has nothing to do with the Bible so they can be credible that they're teaching the Bible. And uh, you got to be smart enough to see through that. And we are carried away today with divers. Divers mean many different ones. Divers uh, and strange doctrines. And then he says, for it is a good thing that that the heart be established with grace. Now, that's a great principle. And that goes along with uh, our verse 8 here. But that's a great principle. Because the balance of your life and my life is grace. He told you over there in John that Jesus came by grace and truth. And the balance in our truth is grace. Grace is the ability to use the truth the right way. It forms the balance of truth. And when you find Christians who have the truth but no grace, you find churches like the one out there in Sugar Creek or Sugar Creek or whatever the name it is out there, they have truth but have absolutely no grace. You're going to find churches today who have grace but they have no truth. You have to have in your life and my life, in this church or in any church, a balance. And the balance will be grace in your heart. Grace will never allow you to overstep the bounds of New Testament Christianity. Grace will never allow you to fall short of the principles and the bounds of New Testament Christianity. Grace will always keep you right on target. And you'll let everything that you look at, deal with, every person, every circumstances, grace will rule the day. And through grace is where truth gets established in balance. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, that is a great, great, great principle. And then he says, be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them uh, that have been occupied therein. And the meats here will be doctrine. It'll go back to the uh, verse 9, the strange doctrines. So you want to connect those two back. Verse 10, we have an altar whereof that we uh, have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought Uh, into the sanctuary by high priest for sin or burn without the camp. Now, what he's saying here in 9 and 10 is that when he says we have an altar, he's not talking about him in particular. He's talking about in the context of, of the Christian world that he's writing this. And the altar that they have there would be the altar that the Jews still have that are still offering up the sacrifices vainly. Um, and, uh, and then he says, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought uh, into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin 
or burn without the camp. What he's saying there, or what he's getting about to say, and verse 12 is our third great principle. What he's getting ready to say here, that he's getting ready to define what your altar is. And he's using a comparison of the nation of Israel. Oh, we could even in modern times make it the Roman Catholic Church who have the wrong altar, who make the wrong sacrifices. And notice he says at the end of verse 12 in the Old Testament, back in Numbers 16, verse 5 to 12 would be the reference here that all this stuff is burned without the camp. It can't be inside the camp. It has to be burned without the camp. Now look at verse 12, and here comes our third great verse or principle. Wherefore, ah, because of, now he's connecting what he just said in nine and, uh, 10 and 11 with verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. What does that mean? It means that when Christ was crucified, he was crucified outside the city gates. The Catholic Church, and this is why I threw the Catholics in here a minute ago, the Catholic Church teaches that he was crucified inside the city. Long back about 300 or so when Constantine came to power, his mother's name was Helena. And uh, when Constantine uh, brought about the Edict of Milan and he consolidated Christianity with uh, all of the paganism, and then everybody started to take pilgrimages down to, down to, uh, to Jerusalem. And his mama uh, went down there on a pilgrimage. And lo and behold, she found within the city there the exact cave where Christ was buried. And uh, she called up her boy, Constantine. And Constantine was so enthralled with all of that that uh, he had a church built on that exact same site. And if you would go to the Holy Land today, the guys that are your guides would, uh, would pay homage to both of uh, people uh, of persuasion, and they would take you to the church called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, the Roman Catholic Church, which is built on the cave that Constantine's mother, Helena, found where she claimed that Christ was buried. And, uh, and of course, uh, they also, she also found uh, the original cross that Christ was crucified on, or parts of it. And, uh, you know, uh, the relics became part of the Catholic Church. This all starts around 300, 400. I'd say by the time the King James Bible came out in 1600, in Europe, there's more, enough pieces of the cross that the Catholic Church has, you could build Fort Apache. But uh, it, the, the, they, they're all connected to it. And, of course, uh, the Bible clearly tells you that he is crucified uh, outside the city. Now, this will be what we know as Gordon's Calvary, uh, which is on Golgotha's Hill, which is outside uh, Jerusalem. And uh, the reason why it's called Gordon's Calvary is because when the, in 1917, when the British kicked out the Ottoman Turks and took over Jerusalem, the British had control of Jerusalem. Within their engineer corps was a Colonel Gordon, who was a saved, born-again man, 
who took a King James 1611 authorized version and took the instructions in it, and he actually found Gordon's Calvary, or, or the Golgotha's Hill, and because he found it, it's commonly called Gordon's Calvary because Colonel Gordon is the one who did all the work to map it out, and uh, he was an engineer and, and found it. So he was crucified outside the city. And when somebody tells you that he was crucified inside the city, uh, again, the Bible is very clear about it, that he suffered without the camp. Now, here is the, here's the third thing you want to get down. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. One of the clearest places anywhere in the Bible. You're going to hear this again tomorrow. One of the clearest places anywhere in the Bible that if your Christian life is an outside the mainstream of the world and Christianity and you're outside the camp, you ain't nowhere. And it isn't, it isn't just being outside the camp, it's bearing his reproach. And I'll just ask you a question. I don't want any answer, but let me ask you a question. What reproach are you bearing today? Anybody? Nobody. Everybody. What reproach are we bearing today outside the camp for him? What is the difference between what's going on in our lives than an unsaved man's lives? What reproach is God's people bearing today without the camp? No, that's not popular. You're going to get a preacher to preach that and, and ask his people what reproach they're bearing. And a guy raised his hand and said, well, I went through it yesterday. The air conditioner broke. We all had to suffer through the day at the office. Not what I'm talking about. Who hates you today because of your stand? Anybody? Who right now is putting on Facebook or they're driving around or talking about you right now because of where you're at? Anybody? What reproach are you bearing or are we just trying to get along with everybody? And that's where Christianity is, you see. And, uh, hey, great verses. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And now that's a reference to the Jerusalem physical in the Old Testament, but we seek one to come would be a reference to the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. You see, that's where your altar should be. Your altar should be bearing his reproach outside the camp. That's where our altar should be. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. See now, see how he, you can't get, just doing good isn't enough. You got to communicate it. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your soul. Now that's the last one and the fourth thing you want to look at. The church is in existence to watch for your souls. It keeps you balanced. It keeps you between grace and truth. It keeps you from getting out there in left field someplace, teaching some heresy that nobody in church history ever taught. It keeps you from getting screwed up and forsaking the doctrines that were taught. 
And if you can't put that verse in your world that you don't have somebody that's a watch care for your soul, i.e., the church, you're in the wrong camp, pal. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give an account that which may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, the key there is not only do they watch for your soul, the reason why they do and the reason why um, they have the way that it has, because they're going to give an account someday. Every pastor is going to give an account of how he dealt with his people. He's going to give an account if he dealt with them and taught them the Bible. He's going to give an account if he held them accountable when they were wrong. He's going to, he's going to give an account of how he stood up for what was right in the face of what's wrong. And he's going to give an account of how he watched for the souls of his people. And uh, it's, it doesn't get any clearer than that. And then he says, you do it, they may do it with joy and not with grief. In other words, if you have to do it, you do it with the idea that you're helping them. You're not doing it so you can hurt them. Now, you know when you whipped your children when they were growing up, and some of you obviously haven't done that very well, but you know as your children were growing up and you chastised them and you whipped them, it wasn't, it wasn't joyful when you did it. But you did it because there was a profit in it that would bring joy later on. And of course, that's the same concept. And you find that over in the Hebrews 6 there where he talks about the chastisement of God. Then he says, verse 18, pray for us, for we trust we have good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Uh, but I beseech you rather to do this, that I may be restored uh, to you sooner. Uh, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, there's a clear verse that talks about the fact that Christ died on the cross and he is the, he's the great shepherd. <clears throat> and that's why back in the Old Testament, you have guys like David, who's a type of Christ. He's a shepherd. Joseph is a type of Christ and he's out with his brethren. He's a shepherd. Shepherds in the Bible, you always want to watch it because it'll always be some kind of pre-picture of what Christ was because he's the shepherd. And, uh, you know, we get the idea today that, uh, um, that pastors are shepherds. And you get that because of the fact that the Catholic Church give that idea. And, of course, the Bible never, never says that. The Bible says that there's one great shepherd, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. A pastor's not a shepherd, Christ is the shepherd of the flock. A pastor is nothing more than a good trained sheepdog. And uh, he keeps the sheep in line for the shepherd. And if you've never seen a sheepdog work in a big place, you've missed a blessing in life, believe me. And uh, they know what they're doing. And uh, I was out in Montana one time at a ranch out there that it took two days to ride to the one border of the ranch. It was that big. And the cattle way out there, and, 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 and the sheep were there, right there where it was at. And you had these sheepdogs that were working the thing. Incredible. And those sheepdogs would lay down while the sheep was in the middle. They would lay down, and, and there was four of them. And they would lay down and around those sheep and just watch them. If a sheep got up and started to get stray away, that dog would let him go a little bit. And then he got too far out, that dog would go over and bark at him. And uh, then if that didn't work, he'd nudge him. 
And if that didn't work, you start nipping at his heels, and that usually got the sheep moving back to the fold. Now watch that. And I thought to myself, boy, if that isn't a picture of what a pastor's job is as a sheepdog. Sometimes you got to grow over there when you start them getting out of the sheep, and you gotta you got to try to nudge them back. Sometimes you got to bark at them. Sometimes you got to nip their heels. And because he, those dogs know that if they get out there too far, you know what's going to get them? The coyotes. 